I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Lane Kawaioka. Uh, Lane is, he currently owns over 8,000 rental units and is leader of the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. Um, he's acquired over $1 billion uh, in real estate and he used to be an engineer, I think uh, left, left that field about two years ago, but um, first of all, Lane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. Yeah, and uh, I would love it if you would kind of just give us a little bit of your background, tell us your story. Um, interesting that came from an engineering background and now uh, are, are massively syndicating uh, tons of real estate. So yeah, maybe just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I kind of grew up in a family that Taught, we're taught to go to school, study hard, be frugal with our money. Um, this is kind of what I call that linear path that a lot of us um, just kind of fell up, fell into, right? Um, I went to schools, was pretty decent at math and science, so I guess I became a freaking engineer, right? So um, <laughs> went and work, went to work, and as a construction supervisor, and you know, made a pretty decent salary and saved a big, big chunk of it and was able to buy a home in Seattle, Washington back in 2009. And because I was traveling all over for work, I never really had a, a headquarters. And because I was single at the time, I just decided to rent it out, kind of like Turo style. They never had Turo back then, but that was kind of the start of it all. It's like, whoa, I'm just like making all this extra money and the tenants paying off my mortgage and getting these tax benefits. and that was kind of start of it all to this simple passive cash flow. And so you start, so you weren't living in Seattle. You just, were you traveling there a lot for work? You just kind of picked Seattle. How did that, how did you come across that, come upon that market? Yeah. I mean, I was, I went to school at University of Washington, um, went there from Hawaii and started working up there. And, you know, I was working for the railroad at the time where you, know, you travel all around Montana, Texas, Oklahoma, and it was a hundred percent traveling job. And I was only home on the weekends, maybe Saturday if I was lucky. And you know, I had this big house to myself. And at one time, it was like a big goal of mine, right, to buy the house to live in, because sure. everybody says that's like the escalator to building wealth. And then I kind of realized it was kind of dumb, right, to have this big house to myself, and it just seemed a little inefficient, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the start of it all. I just called up an old property manager and said like, hey man, can you rent this for me? And we were off and rolling. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that point that, you know, the, the picture of, I don't know, success, wealth, whatever you want to call it, that, that gets painted is, you know, you got to buy yourself a house. That, that's, the, that's the key, right? Like that's the starting point for anybody that wants to, to build their build their life but in reality it's, it's really not always the best decision especially 
if you're going to buy something that's maybe outside of what you can afford, which I think a lot of people do that, they, they sort of stretch when it comes to buying their personal house. So um, how did that, so how, you, you came upon that realization and, and what did that, you know, sort of, how did that change your outlook? How did that change your mindset from there? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of quickly realized, you know, when you're making money four ways with tax benefits, mortgage pay down, what tenant is, you know, putting in their heart, sweat, and tears, paying that for you, the cash flow, and then the appreciation. I was like, whoa, this is pretty powerful stuff. And if I just kept my head down, kept saving, and bought a handful of more of these, I would be definitely on the way out of the rat race, which um, I didn't like my job. I mean, what engineer really does like their job? You don't interact with people. You don't really help people directly. So there's not really much enrichment or engagement on the job side. Um, so just kind of, you know, from 2009, when I bought the first one, bought another few rent units more. And then around 2012, I, you know, Seattle, Washington, you know, it's like a primary market like California, New York. It, the numbers aren't going to work there, period. You're not going to find rent to value ratio properties 1% or higher. So at that point, I pivoted to going remote and bought a whole bunch of properties in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. Got up to 11 rentals in 2015. Still, you know, 11 rentals for people who own those turnkeys. You know, it's a few hundred dollars of passive cash flow each. Great stuff, but nowhere near to like replacing my income at my day job. But, um, you know, the net worth was growing, right? And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, just this passive cash flow game, it takes a while, um, you know, from 2009 to 2015. And then I kind of pivoted more towards um, you know, syndications and private placements from that on out as I became a credit investor myself. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people do think, oh, I got to start with the single family things, you know, and you you had like a lot of people have that sort of realization almost on accident you buy that first house that you're going to live in and for whatever reason you end up renting it out whether it's house hacking or you move and you don't want to sell it whatever whatever the case may be and so you're like oh this is effective but you're right you know you might make a few hundred dollars per month per single family property but it's not the type of thing that you can really scale well or you know, you're not going to replace your job, like you said, especially if you're, if you're making good money. Right. So right. when you pivoted to syndication, you know, how, how did that start out for you? How did you get started in, in syndication? Well, I mean, I kind of thought it a little bit, right? Because when you do one thing and it's all right, and you've kind of done it 11 times, um, you start to think, Hey, I'm just going to keep doing this. Uh, and then, you know, like around 2015, I definitely started to feel the headaches of, of a landlord, you know, if for, if for some people, it's some insights, so they don't have to do the same kind of nonsense I did. And if you have 10, 11 rental properties, you're going to have an eviction or two every year. And then some kind of big catastrophe that happens every quarter. Um, you have a professional property manager dealing with the day-to-day -day on the front lines for you, but you're still approving work orders and Boy, without the cash flow during those periods and sustaining maybe a five twenty thousand dollar repair when somebody jacks up your property you quickly realize that it's just not scalable so you know that that was kind of where i started to join different masterminds get around other high net worth accredited investors and a lot of them 
you know, they, they're, they had no skin in the game, right? They aren't here to sell me anything. They're just peers and colleagues. And a lot of them are saying, yeah, you still own these rental properties are paying the ass. Now we just are passive LP partners in large syndicated deals where somebody else is putting in the hard sweat, sweat and tears and value adding. And that to me, it sounded amazing, right? And the tax benefits are a lot stronger via cost segregations, bonus appreciation. Sure. So did you start investing in syndications as an LP? Is that kind of how you got yourself in the game? Yeah, I mean, to me, like that was kind of the first way to get in because, I mean, no one's just going to let you invest as a general partner. What the heck do you know, right? You're just more of a, a headache than anything. <laughs> you yeah. know, like people yeah. ask like, hey, man, can we uh, GP with you? I'm like, uh, no, you know, like just it doesn't work like that, right? If you don't bring the deal, you don't bring in the capital and, and you don't have the experience already. And whether the experience is legitimate experience where you're actually doing stuff or just on paper via balance sheet or Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac experience or FHA experience, like, no, you're dead weight. Nobody wants you. Um, so, you know, how do you first get going in something? Well, you, you pay the ticket, get on the ride, right? Get in that passive investor seat. And that's a great way to just get started too, right? Then you're kind of, you empathize because you were a passive investor. You know what kind of thoughts and questions that that passive investor is reading. You see some really bad monthly reports. You see some good monthly reports. And, you know, when you kind of try and create your own, you empathize what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah, no, those are great points. I mean, I think that seeing what you like out of other operators as a passive investor really helps you when you then want to go into, you know, sort of being, being more on the active side, and then you're sending out those reports, or you're doing those distributions, or however, you know, whatever the case may be, you, you can learn from others, you know, and pick up on the good habits, and hopefully not, you know, not the bad ones. Um, so then you, did you trans transition sort of then into, uh, more of an active role at that point? Yeah, I mean, at, at that point, um, you know, a lot of people kind of were following myself and you know, kind of just wanted to jump into deals with me. So the naturally, this the Huido pipeline come kind of came together and we just started to do deals, picked up a lot of, you know, crappy class C properties, 40 unit, 52 unit, 70 unit, you know, these small, very small deals that were kind of a pain in the butt to manage but hey that's all you can get when right. you know there's a new kid on the block and you know the brokers don't really take you seriously and then you know, you've got to kind of take for what you can get but um yeah that's how, how we kind of started right and you know just kind of clenching our butts to raise the capital to complete the deal so we don't lose our earnest money and then jump into the deal then you know you kind of just battle things as they come um, luckily with you know, real estate, you know, it's not like a venture capital where, you know, reliance on the operator is kind of the 90, 99% of it. You know, if you buy the right property, these deals definitely do run themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, I feel like that's a little bit of a contrarian take, you know, so a lot of people put a lot of, I think, emphasis on the operator. And I think certainly the operator matters a lot, but yeah, when it comes to real estate, most of the time, if you've bought it right, you're going to 
go ahead and yeah. you know sort of things things are going to go decently well. Um, you may have you make some you may make something decent if you're uh, into great if you're a great operator or you might make something <laughs> a little less than great if you're if you're not a good operator. But it's it's true. I mean that with venture capital it's it's a little bit more of a gamble. But you know real estate has its it's a very tangible safe asset to invest in. Right. I mean, there's always two sides to a coin, right? The, the, the marketers are always going to say, yeah, you know, you got to just bet on the jockey. And by the way, we're a great jockey. So right. you can invest with us. Yeah. But, you know, or, you know, sophisticated investors, they know how to run the numbers, P&Ls, rent rolls, run it through their own analyzer, see what number they're getting at the bottom of the page. Trouble is most passive investors don't have a clue how to do that. I mean, you're not even given P&Ls and rent rolls as a passive investor. So you can't even begin to do the due diligence on your own. Um, so I, I guess I, I see where the advice is coming from, right? But it, quite frankly, as y'all passive investors don't know what you're doing, so you might as well just bet on the jockey. Yeah, no, it's valid. I mean, if you, you have to have, if you don't know how to underwrite, you don't know how to really decide if a deal is good or not on your own, then, then for sure you need to be investing with someone that you trust does know those things. Um, so, I mean, you don't, you don't just get to 8,000 units and, you know, billion, billion dollars assets under management doing, you know, 40, 50, 70 unit deals. How did that, how did that grow and scale for you? What did you, you know, kind of what steps did you take? Yeah. I mean, we just kept on doing more and more deals. Um, you know, I, I think we, we realized that there was a certain sweet spot when you get above 150 units because I mean, everybody talks about having that, that leasing agent in the office at all times. So you have a physical presence, blah, 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 blah. But where things really start to get cooking and where you really get to get copies of skills when you get, are able to first hire that, that handyman that kind of is that person's right arm person because the, the leasing agent is just playing on their phone all day long. And putting out some marketing here and there, and and interacting with uh, prospective tenants, but it's that person that they they lay out the work orders towards, whether that be you know plumbing repair here that you don't have to pay third party repairs, or you know we'll get like HVAC certified folks, um, so they can at least take care of like those easy repairs, you know for HVAC repair and stuff like that. Um, that's really where you get the economy of scales, like above 150 units and above. Um, but yeah, I mean, just kept doing deals after deals after deal after deal. I think we've done over 50 deals thus far. So you know, take that divided by 50, I don't know, is it like 100 or 200 units on average? So yeah, there's a, there's a few like larger complexes in there, like a 303 unit. 26 in there but you know a lot of it was just kind of grinding away at 100 to 200 unit properties on average in there but the the larger properties to me are the more robust ones I mean, when i just yeah. just look at you know income income kind of is relatively consistent kind of creeps up over time especially as you increase rents but the expenses are the ones that jump up and down because you might have prepaids here or there and then obviously the, the income minus expenses and the operating income that should steadily rise over time. But it just seems like with the larger properties, and maybe this is kind of obvious, but 
you know, when you have the larger properties, you just seem to stack up cash a lot quicker. You know, like the larger properties, you know, you'll be stacking up 50, 60, 70 grand every month where with a little 50 unit, I mean, you're, you're grinding five grand profits on a month to month basis. It, it's hard to get enough substantial money in the bank um, to be able to pay out distributions of those. Um, even though percentage rise, it might be the same, but right. just, right. yeah, just a little bit more consistent, the bigger stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're, if the, if the rents are the same and you're collecting on a 50 unit or a 400 unit, it's just the, the numbers that you're getting each month, it's going to, it's just a much higher um, total value. And you're, if you can have the efficiencies of scale in those large properties, that's where you're, you know, really going to make that difference even larger because you can, if you can decrease your expenses, that the rent number is just a lot higher. The income number is a lot higher. Right. And, and when it's time, you know, the quarterly times to make out distributions, I mean, we don't have a really good system to it, right? It's kind of like, you know, how much money you're going to spend on your vacation every quarter or every once a year, right? You look at your bank and you've got 60 grand there. You're kind of your personal expenses are you know, $10,000 plus or minus every month. You want to line up three months of cash reserves. You know, there's, there's no science to this, right? I mean, and the more money in the bank, the more confident you are to distributing out more and, um, you know, distributing out less, although it's, it's better in the safety of the investment, for sure, it does make investors upset. <laughs> you know, right. they, they would rather, they would rather see the distributions come back to them. But this isn't a REIT, right? REITs are you know, 90% of distributions come back to the investors, which sounds amazing for investors, but in the all truth and honesty, it may not be aligned with what's best for the, the asset in its longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in a REIT, there's no, there's no tax benefits. There's no, you know, there's no sale where you're going to get to participate in the, in the sale proceeds and things like that. So it's, I've, I've had people ask me that question. Well, like, what's the difference between this and a REIT? Like a, a REIT is basically the stock market. It's the same as investing in Apple or Amazon, whatever it is with dividends. And, and, and in real estate, you're, you're actually, you know, it's actual ownership. So I, I think it's a lot better, but I, wa I wanted to, I actually would love to dive in a little bit there on your philosophies on distributions, because I do think that's a thing that that's one of those things that sort of everybody does a little bit differently. And there is no hard and fast rule about, you know, are you going to do it monthly, quarterly? How much is it going to be? How, you, you said you don't, you don't really have, you know, a system to it, but what, what goes into your thought process when you're, when you're doing that? Well, I mean, the, the, the asset better be doing well, right? I mean, that's number one. I mean, we've got kind of three goals in a lot of these these projects. First, capital preservation. People don't lose money. So that means, you know, fortifying the cash reserves, working capital budgets so you're, you're not caught with your pants down in case a pandemic or a little recession happens. Um, the second goal in that perspective order is, you know, completing the business plan. If you look at a lot of deals today, especially with bridge notes, I mean, only like one third of the money or less is coming through the, the cash flow in the first five years, six years. In most two thirds of the money, 
vast majority is coming in that value add. So, and that means putting the money into the asset, bumping the rents up and creating money that way. And so thirdly, the last, and which doesn't always get hit, which is cash flow. And investors may not like to hear about it, but you know, they, to me, if you're hitting on those first two objectives, that's all an investor could want. Um, I mean, if you get cash flow, to me, that's that's amazing and great. But most passive investors who are accredited and have been pretty seasoned, they don't give a rip really what happens on a month-to-month basis or even a quarterly yeah. basis, right? Like these little cash flow checks that you get, it's nice to get them, but it's not changing anybody's life. It's certainly not changing an investor who's won the $2 million network and greater. Now, if you're a newer investor, yeah, I get it, right? We were all there at one point in time, but you know, I'm, I'm just not going to run my deal like a Ponzi scheme where I raise half a million dollars, million dollars extra to pay out the pref. Like that's just not right. And that's, I mean, it's right, I guess, if you disclose it in your PPM, people do, right. can do whatever they want if they disclose it. But to me, that's in a way, it's like taking out extra leverage, paying out investors money just to keep them happy. And then what happens if there's a, some kind of hiccup in the copy, right? You don't have those cash reserves because you, you paid it out. Right, right. You get asked right. for it back. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you, you, you distribute all the capital and then have an issue, now you're doing a yeah. capital call and asking for the money back. So, I mean, that's... But- People do it all the time, right? And a lot of times passive investors don't have a clue it's happening. You know, just yeah. fatten up your, your CapEx budget and you know, just raise extra capital there. Um, it's done all the time. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the banks don't let us distribute out the first couple of quarters until certain metrics are hit. You know, that's just, so I don't know how money is leaving. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Magic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I get it, it really has to do with one, you know, your, your communication with the investors and being just transparent and saying, hey, in a lot of ways, especially these, you know, moderate to heavy value add type deals, it's a lot more like a flip than it is, you know, sort of a stabilized cash flowing asset. It's, it's you're really, you've got to put all that money into your CapEx and, and, and take time and get the get those rents up. And then, in the end, you're going to sell it for much more, you know, because with cap rates, it's it's a multiple of whatever your your NOI is, and so that's that you're 100 right. Like that's that's really where you're going to make money. It's it's not, you know, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars and there's an eight pref, like that's eight thousand dollars in the in a year. Like nobody's nobody's retiring on that. So it's kind of unless you have a huge amount of money invested into these deals, then that that cash flow component of it, it's probably not going to change a whole lot. The, but what's going to change your life is that, you know, if your money gets doubled every five years, right? Like that's the that's ultimately what I think what people are really wanting, and I, I think that's kind of the point you're getting at. Yeah, but I, I get it, right? Like if if you haven't seen the dance, yeah, you haven't seen your money come back full cycle to extra capital in whatever years that, you know, especially if you have a skeptic spouse, right? Like, you know, they're giving the person the hard time. Like, well, what happens yeah. with our money? Do we get it? You know, right. these measly $2,000 a year or every quarter, you know, like, I mean, 
I get it where it's where the pressure is coming from, but it's kind of like one of those things that you just gotta sit and wait. I mean, this isn't 2016 anymore. I mean, back then, 80% of the deals were done with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, non-recourse, fixed debt. Um, and you were able to cash flow at eight, nine, 10% plus per quarter. That ain't happening anymore, right? Yeah. Like, like the returns are still there, but you know, it's flipped from 80, 20 to 20% of the deals are long-term Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And the majority of deals are done via bridge note. And the bridge notes are good and good situ in, in the right deals. They can be very dangerous in the bad deals, but you know, it, it's kind of what the tool is for is to go on and value add the asset, refinance it without a prepayment penalty, and then return a lot more capital. Yeah. Will you, will you define that for people? Just bridge debt, just for anyone listening that doesn't know exactly, you know, kind of the distinction that you're making here. I think that'd be a good thing to sort of put out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like a tool, right? You use a type right tool for the job um, in terms of real estate investing, right? You've got a couple of general options right you've got the long-term fixed debt where it might range from five eight i think we've gotten even as long as 12 years right Which sounds really cool right like you don't have to worry about interest rate changes and but the downside of that is you have heavy prepayment penalties like mm -hmm. like one or two percent that you may have to cough up if you refinance or, or exit that asset earlier which if you are doing everything well, and that's a good market, you should be exiting earlier, but you're gonna get hit by that one or 2% um, prepayment penalty. And you know, sometimes you know, we're not gonna get into the details, but you can get these step downs. So it's not as extreme as what I'm saying, right? But you know, the other option would be like a more of a bridge note. There's a huge range of these bridge notes by a huge range of different lenders and banks out there. But as the name, suggests this is made to bridge you to when you value add the asset whether that's six months or three years or if you're super slow 10 years whatever right like you know the the, the average bridge notes are you know two to three years and then if you get caught you can usually extend it a couple of times for a couple of years but that the nice thing about the bridge note well the bad thing is you know obviously the rate resets but if you're doing value add real estate who cares Interest rate doesn't matter if your interest rate matters if you're buying like turnkey rentals and you're doing the buy, hope, and pray model, right? Then your interest rate has a huge implication on your profitability. But if you're in the value add game, you're creating so much value that you don't give a rip what the interest rate is for the most part, right? Within reason, right? Seven, eight percent. Now that might change the numbers a little bit, but the interest rates can go up pretty high. From where you're at today for that to really start to impact things because you're making so much money in the value add creation on a monthly month basis i think i was just showing somebody at lunch here today you know we, if you're just changing out five units you know out of 100 or 200 unit complex a month which isn't much sometimes you can get done 10 units in in the heavy months but you take five units and you increase the rents by 150 bucks times that by 12, um, and then divide that by a cap rate of 0 0.5. I mean, you're creating like a, almost $200,000 of value every single month. We don't care about your little interest payment going up a quarter point or half a point or even a full point um, on, a, on an annual basis. 
that point. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, that's it. That whole point you just made about, you know, I think a lot of people that maybe don't understand new investors, things like that. And they say, okay, you're, you know, so if you, if you turn, say you turn 10 units, like you said, you go up $150 per, uh, per unit per month. That's, they're like, oh, well, that's only 1500 bucks. Like that's not, you know, they're like, that's not this crazy amount. But what, what you're not realizing is then you multiply by 12 and then you multiply, you divide it by the cap rate. And so the actual value of the asset has gone up tremendously. It's not, it's not that small amount of money that, that, that you're just getting in extra rents. So that's why, you know, anyone listening, that's why Lane's saying like, when you're using this bridge debt and, and a lot of these value add deals, the real, the real payout comes at your capital event, whether it's a refinance or a sale, because you've increased the value so much based on whatever that current cap rate is. And so um, it's, it's an important thing that I think people don't necessarily know. And so, yeah, that, that the interest rate and the interest rate on the bridge debt isn't that important because of all the reasons you explained, you know, you might be a point or two higher than you would be on that, you know, agency long-term debt, but you won't have the one or 2% prepayment penalty on the back end. So it's kind of, it, it, it makes it up. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be cavalier to interest rate doesn't matter because just some people just can't get it through their dense skulls, right? Like some people like they, they're like, oh, what's the loan to value on it? And they just won't touch it if it's like higher than 75%. But I'm like, dude, that has like, don't look at the debts, don't look at the, at the loan to value. That's like basic investing rule of thumbs. Look at the debt service coverage ratio. Yeah. That's what the banks do. That's what the pros do. The, pro, the, the, the banks don't look at loan, the cost, loan to value. They look at debt service coverage ratio. Can this thing pay for the debt service? And I think that's a lot more sophisticated way of, of looking at this. I mean, it's just like, it's essentially like that age-old question that you see in the newbie forms where like, what's the most I should leverage my property? It's like, well, take it up to 1.25 debt service coverage ratio and that's what you get, right? That's your loan to value that if you want to play it safe, you know, you want to be more aggressive, go to 1.1, 1.0, but that's at least you're talking in terms of like, a numbers-based thing where variables can change. You still hit, the, you know, you know what your numbers are, but the loan-to-value thing is just kind of one of the superfluous things that people latch on to. Just like, you know, thinking, oh, bridge debt's always bad or, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, interest rates always super important. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it, the the thing that I have learned and, and sort of realized is, is the structure of your debt and not necessarily Yes, interest rate is a part of that, but the whole structure of your debt, like, do you have interest only payments? How long are those for? How, what's the prepay? All of that wrapped up together might be the single most important thing about your returns. Yeah. Maybe, I, I, like the, I agree. I mean, like the interest, interest only thing, it ex, like, I agree. That's a great, you know, we can get up to like four years of interest only, but some investors, they're freaked out about that. Oh my God, you're not paying any interest. Right. Or you're not, you know, you're not paying any you're not paying off the principal. principal. Right. Yeah. yeah. And but they kind of like, look, what you know, whatever investors are the clients, they're the, they're always right, I guess. You know, yeah. whatever. Well, it just depends but, on what your strategy is, right? If if this is like 
maybe something that you're buying yourself or with a small group of people as a joint venture and you're going to hold it long term and this is just this is an asset you're going to pass to your kids yeah you want the lowest interest rate for the longest term that you can get that's because you're doing the buy hope and pray model right (laughs) yeah you're 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 looking for that sort of long-term thing but but if you're doing you know what most people are doing in the value add space and it's a you know we say you know three to five year turnaround but a lot of people are getting this stuff done in 12 18 months less than two years a lot of time it's just it's it's going fast so it, it at that point to maximize the returns you essentially have to be paying the least amount that you can in mortgage during that time so you can put it all into the to the capex and and increasing the value of that property so it's just a not to belabor the point it's, it's just like a incredibly important component of it that I think most people that aren't like haven't been doing this for a little while don't understand how how critical it is to to how the deal functions yeah yeah I mean essentially it's kind of like a slow flip I mean if we're if we're rehabbing five units bumping it up 150 bucks a unit I mean that's creating 180 grand of value it's kind of like if you know we did a house flip on a, you know, buy a house that's 400,000, put a bunch of work into it, 100 grand of work into it. Now it's worth 700. But you're doing that everything a month without all the BS. And if the economy kind of crashes, at least you hold on and cash flow as opposed to that flip, you're screwed. Totally screwed. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's totally true. It's just, it's just doing that on a, on a larger scale. Right. And with, with the ability to create more value more quickly because it's it's not entirely based on what the market is doing it's based on the value of that property the rents received and stuff the cap rate is kind of a measure of the value of the market value but you know there's there's a lot more that goes into it um one of the one of the things i want to touch on it was you mentioned it kind of in your bio and everything like that was um infinite banking are you, is that something that you're sort of utilizing? You're a big fan of what, what's that, you know, what's your uh, take on that? Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it since I think 2016, I did like a little policy for myself where I threw in like 50 grand every year. Um, there, there's some pros, most, uh, mostly pros, some cons, right? The cons are, you know, you're paying some fees to the agent on the, on the front end, which, you know, you, Usually you should break even point on that, you know, a few years into the future. So it all should be gravy after that. But the, you know, the pros are when you load your money into this, it's sort of like the, a tax loophole, right? If you stay below your back limit, you should be able to, you know, not pay taxes on the gains, which is, you know, the, the loser in this is the government, right? Because it's kind of, that's, that's why people do it. But also when your money's in here, it's sort of asset protected, just like a 401k fund. So a lot of investors, what they do is they, they'll create a policy and fund it with a hundred, you know, some even $250,000 a year for five to six years, which sounds like a lot, but what they're doing is they're funding it and then they're taking it right back out to invest it. So their money is continually working in there. And a real rudimentary way of thinking about this is it's kind of like a house, right? house you you know if you pay down your mortgage you can get it back out via HELOC even though it's very inefficient right the banks are going to screw around with your evaluations but with this infinite banking policy it's a lot more efficient you put the money in there 
and then you can withdraw it right back out and and when you get when one of these deals cashes out you just load it right back into your infinite banking policy pay back your loans and while it's in there it's growing tax-free usually like four or five percent and then the other trick is when you borrow money out i mean it should be you should be calling it a business expense so you're able to write it off but um yeah i mean we we have like a an e-course on our website to kind of teach people about it it takes people it took me a couple of years to really wrap my head around it but you know like a lot of this type of stuff it's very easy except you got to get around the right people doing it too so it becomes kind of second second nature people teaching each other within a community that's kind of what it's all about yeah kind of reversing the the dogma that our parents taught us where you're told to invest in a 401k, Roth IRA, you know, put money to retirement, buy a house, pay down your mortgage, you know, all the things that they work for lower net worth people who aren't good with their money. But if you're a good saver, maybe invest in real estate, like it's just a different paradigm. Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've figured out that a lot of that, um, you know, sort of traditional retirement account path is, is really just structured to help people that, essentially don't want to or don't have the capacity to figure out what the better options are to do and so they have they have something right like it's if you do nothing else it's it's good idea to invest in a 401k like if that's the only thing you're doing for retirement then then it's it's better than nothing but it's it's not the best thing that you can do it's just some of the other stuff takes a little more education and research right but the government needs to make these things because 99% of people in this country and maybe this world are really bad with their money. They spend more money than they can make and they keep, can't keep their grubby hands off their money for buying jet skis or whatever. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Which is why like for those people, buying a house to live in is a good idea because it, it's a forced piggy bank where people like us and listening to this podcast, I mean, we're a little bit different. We're, we're more disciplined. Whether some of us use the envelope system or not, I was joking tease those people but you know if you're good with your money it's better to get on the offense not buy a house to live in invest grow your net worth that way and then you buy the buy buy the vices of life with cash flow yeah yeah exactly i, I i've heard people kind of use that strategy as is if you want something what you need to do is buy the asset that pays for it right find find that cash flowing asset that's going to pay for your new car payment or whatever whatever it is so that's that's how you really kind of handle those things and it's it does it takes a lot of discipline because it's not going to happen quickly like unless you got some large inheritance or won the lottery and you're able to like <laughs> dump that all into investments it's going to take you a little while to get to that point so so it means you know several years of of sacrifice and and waiting on some of those other things that you might want so that in the end it's kind of easy to get the things that you want you know it ultimately it's that that sort of get rich slow uh type of philosophy for with real estate well, i i think uh yeah i mean i think this is all all great information um maybe what i'll do now lane is, is we'll just switch gears i'll i'll kind of uh, get to the part where I ask you questions just so I don't keep you talking all night long. I feel like there's so, so much stuff we could dive into. Um, but I'll, I'll ask you the questions I ask every guest and, and we'll kind of expand on them. But the first one is based on the name of the show being Know Your Why. And so what's your why? What, what drives you, you know, kind of what pushes you towards this level of success? 
Uh, I don't know, dude. I'm just trying to figure it out. I go to life coach and trying to, I'm going through like my midlife crisis now. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to keep doing deals and, you know, investing in stuff that cash flow and just mindlessly do what I've been doing that got me here. But I ask myself the question all the time. And, you know, I think that maybe that's why I do like the podcast and website to kind of dispel the nonsense out there. I see myself as a little Robin Hood, you know, teaching the right thing and kind of stealing from the rich, which I see as the the big institutional Wall Street companies and the REITs, right? They That's the problem with that stuff is they just kind of rob people blind with all the hidden fees and carried interests. And the hardworking middle-class people are the ones paying all the taxes and the fees and they get screwed over. So that's kind of what's been driving me. But my, uh, my life coach tells me I need to lighten up and stop using, you know, stop fighting that fight and find something, find some other hobbies, I guess. I mean, so. I think, I think it's a very valid fight. I, I, I think there, there is a lot wrong with the way that things are structured, right? It's like, I, one of the, one of my biggest pet peeves is the whole accredited investor thing right? Because it's like, rich people already know how to be rich. They already know what to do. They're already there. So the people that are accredited already have the ability to kind of continue and grow that wealth. But when you block unaccredited investors from a safe, like excellent investment vehicle like real estate, it's it's very frustrating to me that, that that's not, it's it makes it harder to sort of teach people maybe the, the better way to do it. Whereas anybody can put their money in the stock market and lose all their money in the stock market. Like there's no rule that stops you from doing that. You just need a Robinhood account. Like it's not, it's not hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the same thing, but then I saw like, you know, all these crypto altcoins, right. They're essentially like not, I mean, you should be able to go through like a 50 page, hundred page PPM to get into one of those things. But these, these non-accredited investors who just do whatever. Right. There's no fundamentals and no investment philosophy. They just do whatever they can, you know, and they're going to lose their money at, at some point doing this stupid stuff. So I get why the government doesn't trust the average citizen. You know, So I don't know. I see it both ways. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. The, the, the fact that they don't trust people to, to do the right thing with their money makes sense because it's, been shown time and time again that a lot of people don't do the right thing with their money but but the bottom line is like they're letting people do the wrong thing with their money with crypto with stock market i mean i don't know if i don't know if crypto is a good thing to invest in or not like i'm not actually trying to make stock advice i'm just saying there are ways that you can blow your money very easily you don't have to be an accredited investor to go to vegas like it's not you could lose all your money in one day in Vegas. Like it, it just doesn't. So it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me that then it's so very highly regulated to get people into real estate. Like, like you can't get some of your friends and family into a real estate deal in, in a lot of situations. So it's just yeah. kind of a, a weird, I don't know. It's a weird dichotomy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 think the same thing man it's frustrating isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> um anyway we'll, we'll get up get off the uh the soapbox but um 
Yeah, we'll be on social media writing long posts about what things we can't change and complaining <laughs> right, exactly, about yeah. other writing, people's qualms. Writing long posts that the government won't care about at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. but we'll continue to beat our drum because somebody will care. Yeah, and hopefully, then hopefully Facebook, we reach one or two people. Yeah. yeah, and then Facebook will guide it towards people who care. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, so second question. Tell listeners something about yourself that that maybe isn't common knowledge. What do we, uh, you know, a special skill or a hobby or something something that uh, maybe not everybody knows about you? Um, I like to do some CrossFit. I don't surf. I don't like the beach. Growing up, I was a geek. That's why I became an engineer. Um, don't surf. And you live on Hawaii. Yeah, I became an engineer so I could just like have the highest paid. Uh, salary without going to grad school I always just do the easiest thing so yeah. I found this hey. passive real estate investing thing it's, it's working <laughs> out well for you so I, I would stick with that philosophy um, no, that's cool what, what uh, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you what, what's the best way to get a hold of you and we'll put, put whatever you want in the show notes uh, they can check out simplepassivecashflow.com and then you know, if they listen to podcasts simple passive cash flow um, or just Google me, Lane Kawoka. I think I'm the only one there. Okay, good. Final question, Lane. What uh, what piece of advice would you give to people that are maybe getting started in real estate and you know, kind of trying to get their their foot in the door? How would you advise them? Uh, depends where they are net worth and you know what I call the journey, right? Like if you're not an accredited investor and you're under a quarter million dollar net worth and you make less than six figures dude, it's going to be tough. Go buy some rental properties, get comfortable because it's going to take you a while to get up to half a million, million dollars net worth. But if, you know, you're making, you know, even low six figures, I mean, you know, maybe you could buy a rental property to just get, get the hang of it. Um, but if not, find some people around you doing this type of stuff and, you know, invest with people you know, like, and trust and, you know, keep calm, cash flow on. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate having you on the show. I, I really like kind of digging in on all those topics that <laughs> it seems we both have uh, agree that maybe things aren't always structured the right way. But uh, yeah, we're becoming you like old grumpy man. I yeah. think we start to talk about things you can't change. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Just... <laughs> Get off my lawn. It's just that, <laughs> yeah. It's just that, yeah, that kind of uh, mentality of like, yeah you want to you want to fix the world but uh like i but said yeah, I, I appreciate half midlife crisis yeah. <laughs> changing I things it. i can't change exactly um but thank you again thank you for your time it was awesome okay go cool, jason thanks man all right take it Bye. easy i'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey without a strong why it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential my name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.